machine, but not all the way live. So really welcome again for the reopening of Homer's Coffee House uh, uh, and the first public worship uh, since March. Of course, the other Sundays we did them virtually and it worked out fine, but we're just thankful that we're still here. You know, the takeout revenue was about 60% of what was historic. And so that got us through, and now the revenue is picking up, and we're glad to be back doing the work that God gave us to do here in downtown Overland Park. And so we come back, we come back live, and we begin with such, such a tough place, don't we? We're all so aware of the culture in the U.S. We're all so aware of, and I'm going to be really direct, we're all so aware of the, the, the issues about life and death. And uh, we all have stories of death and dying, and in, in our uh, universe, particularly close the last 10 days or so, we had a co-worker who was a man of faith, woke up one morning and his wife didn't. And, uh, you know, I got the email explaining that to me, and that's a tough email to get, I can assure you. And I think we're more and more keenly aware of the issues of life and death. You know, the screens that we all uh, are glued to, whichever one you choose, says now 400,000 deaths worldwide uh, from COVID-19, and now all the related uh, issues and stories and protests of whether it's Black Lives Matter or Every Lives Matter. I mean, it's in our it's in our grill. And uh, I think these issues, whether it be the virus or uh, racial discrimination, I think they uh, require um, some discussion. I think they require a statement. Uh, from the faith-based portion of our lives. And so, like it or not, um, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time trying to persuade you of my opinion or your position, what it should be. Um, but I just want to share some really frank thoughts with you today about candid thoughts, maybe, about the reality of death. Uh, and the reality of life living in fear of a virus and the reality of life living in fear of racial discriminations. And, and so I, I also think it's important for us as the believers to know that um, if those two uh, scenarios of living in fear uh, are not counteracted by our awareness and our knowledge and our faithfulness that... Uh, we have the grace of God given to us through the death of Jesus Christ. And at the cross, he gave us uh, the opportunity to live again, to live for eternity. So I know it's a tough time uh, to talk about this kind of stuff, but I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself uh, to try to talk about something else. And so, um, you know, I have friends, you have friends. I have neighbors, you have neighbors. They're out of work, they've been furloughed, they're having financial uncertainty, and now we face re-emerging from these shutdowns, lockdowns, um, whatever you want to call it, 
and we enter into this landscape that's marred by the reality of life and death, but also the reality of haves and have-nots. And, uh, you know, sadly, many in the have-not category, they lead in the unemployed. Many in the have-not category uh, are people of color, and they have the highest death toll of the virus. And, of course, the highest proportion of people in, of color that are um, have been uh, sadly uh, uh, lost uh, to the virus are black. And so that's the reality of the world. And so I, I thought about this, obviously, and I was led to the New Testament book of James. And I didn't uh, do any scriptures today uh, on the screen. So if you want to open your phone or your Bible, I would ask you to open to the book of James, New Testament, towards the back, write the book right before 1st, 2nd, 3rd Peter. And I'm going to just give you some thoughts about it. And, you know, I've studied James a number of times, and fundamentally I love the book of James, and I love the teaching in James, but it is the hardest teaching for me um, because it's fundamentally about the love of Jesus Christ, and I get that. But the other part that it's about is the love of Jesus Christ as it relates to how we behave and treat and react and talk and live with others. And so that's the part that I have trouble with. So it's about fundamentally the love of Jesus Christ. But the other part of the book, the big message of the book is how do you behave? If you really say you love Christ, how do you behave with the people you interact with? So I, I think there's three quick learnings uh, that we need to put in place. One is, I gotta give you the context of this, especially in light of this All Lives Matter and the behavior and faithfulness that is required by James. And then second, you know, James, I think, tackles head on this idea of race, but he also tackles head on the idea of justice and equality. And so I wanna talk a little bit about that. And, you know, reg regrettably, uh, justice and equality has not always been the uh, place that we have played uh, uh, for people of color. And if James' uh, words are not enough and points one and two, I want to go straight to uh, James chapter four because the solution, according to James, is you got to get right with other people, and that's just like hitting us right in the head. So let's dive in, huh? So let me try to place this idea that all lives matter in context. And I want to use James' word, uh, words in James chapter 1. And it's James chapter 1. You don't have to go very far. Verse 2 and 3. And here's what he says in the very beginning. And it's in your face. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You've got a different translation that says, consider it pure joy, or when you encounter trials of any kind. <clears throat> but then the other side of that statement is because that makes us stronger in our faith. That makes us stronger in the intensity of our faith in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so... Was the death of George Floyd a trial? 
I mean, was the death of Breonna Taylor a trial? Was the death of Eric Garner a trial? Or if you want to go back, was the death of Trayvon Martin a trial? Sure, right? You'd, you'd agree they were trials. So then what did James say? Pure joy. I think I've told you before, I had a guy in my life who always answered his mobile phone, Joy Central. I think it's pretty tough for the people in those communities, whether they are related to those people who regrettably have been uh, killed in, uh, in the line of uh, law enforcement or for whatever reason, to count it all joy. I just think it's super difficult to count that as all joy. And I know this, and I know this passage because sometimes I try to hear this passage. I try to hear in my daily life as I go about my business, when I encounter obstacles, I try to hear. Uh, well, James says, count it all joy. In my life, some days are filled with situations that are not joyful. Is that a fair statement? In your life, maybe that's the way it is too, and it's far from me uh, to say that, you know, I can count it all as joy and I can't wait because I'm going to get my faith built up in Jesus Christ. I just have a hard time with that. And I'm sure that the people that were peacefully protesting the homicide of George Floyd thought it was really troubling that there was protest and looting that broke out. I'm sure that the people that were protesting the death of this man didn't want to have, you know, police stations burned to the ground, police cars burned to the ground, graffiti, uh, looting. I was especially struck by the mayor of Atlanta. You may have seen her on TV. She said, you don't show up for a protest with a club, a knife, or a bag of urine. And I thought, man, that's pretty, pretty right on. But that's the essence of the dilemma, isn't it? That's the essence of the dilemma we face, and it's a very personal reality in my life and your life, is you're going to encounter circumstances. There are going to be events that happen in your life, and God is telling you through James to consider it pure joy because it's going to increase your faith. You know, those are building blocks. Those are learning experiences. They're supposed to make me stronger in my relationship with the, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as tough as that is for me, I still bring this to you because this, to me, is head-on about what we're dealing with. And so there's another early passage in James, same chapter, and go to verse 5, and it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who will give generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. How are you doing on your wisdom asking? Very another challenging for me, because in my life, asking God for wisdom generally comes after I've exhausted all my own wisdom, all my own thoughts, all my human capacity, and when I'm finally at the end of my rope, hey God, would you please give me some of that wisdom? And look what the scripture says. I don't know what the struggle is that you deal with, but it says, 
God will give generously to us if we ask. When do you, how's your asking? How's your asking for generously given wisdom? If we give God and ask God, he will give generously. He's not like a genie in a bottle. He's not like a slot machine. But you know what ask means? Ask means you have to pray. And I don't always do good every day at praying. And then I just want to point you to one other passage in that first chapter of James, and it's verse 8. And I think this kind of summarizes his initial teaching. He says, for that person, in other words, for the person who doesn't ask for wisdom, for that person, he must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded. And then he throws in the kicker, because if you're double-minded, you're unstable in all your ways. So how's your stability? This is a challenge for me, because you know I've talked about this before. I love Jesus Christ. I love the Lord. He is Lord of my life. But how come I cannot get it right to ask him for the things he has promised he would give us in the first eight verses in James? I don't want to be double-minded in my life. I don't want to be double-thought. I don't want to be tossed by the wind. A double-minded man is unsure of himself. Is that who you want to be? You know how you get to be sure of yourself? You ask. Why do, I, uh, why do you think I began with these difficult directions from James? Already in the first whatever bit minutes it's been, I've told you all my shortcomings, and please forgive me because I am weak. Super difficult for me to teach on words that are super hard for me to obey. But I thought if I needed to be reminded in this storm we've got, then I would think maybe some other folks just need to be reminded. So these are very direct teaching from James, but who is this James cat? One of the closest followers of Jesus. Probably a man that had as much impact on the New Testament church in the first century as any other. There was others, certainly Paul, Peter. And the best example I can give you is uh, uh, the story of the transfiguration. It's in all the Gospels uh, except John. It's in John, but it's not quite as straightforward. But this is the big three, Peter, James, and John. James is one of the big three. They go up on the mountain with Jesus. He, they've gone to pray, and Jesus starts to glow. He starts to get radiant. And pretty soon, Moses and Elijah appear next to him, and then a voice from heaven says, Son. And of course, I think that's God the Father. I think that's what the Scripture wants us to believe. This guy was an important guy. If that doesn't sell you, how about the guy that Jesus appeared to personally post-resurrection? Now, he appeared to some of the disciples in the room, but he appeared to James personally. Mm -hmm. 
I have to tell you, man, this guy's teachings to me are powerful and they're valid. And they called him uh, James the Just. And now by now, I'm sure you know that I'm talking about James, the brother of Jesus. And this is the man that Jesus knew ultimately would follow him with great devotion, great conviction. The way I see it is, think of it this way. If the first century church had been dominated by great apostles like James or Peter or Paul or John, that we often read their writings, I don't know that we would have a world uh, church at two and a half billion worldwide. But those men taught people just like you and me about words just like these. And I think the people needed to be reminded of the behaviors that set them apart. Even this writing, written 20 or so years after Jesus left the earth. And I think we need to be reminded ourselves. I'm giving you all this context. I'm sorry, but the reason I'm giving it to you is because this guy is dead ahead. He is, there's no like waver, no wobble. He's right in your grill and... Um, I'm not trying to predict failure, otherwise say anything about your life, but I'll finish the context for this morning um, and this one uh, verse, and it's from uh, James 4. So you need to turn over to James 4 and to verse 13. <clears throat> and here's a verse about life. And I knew this verse was there because you hear it a lot. And what does it say in verse 413? It says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. vanishes. I think James is saying death, my friends, is reality. And if this is the only life we've got, our behavior might be able to shape not only our lives, but it might be able to shape the lives of others that we interact with. And if you think of it that way, the impact of our lifetime on the purpose that God has given us in the world start, starts to have a pretty important thought process. And I just want you to think of it that way because that's the way that uh, I hope you will approach uh, the balance of the few minutes I have. So that's the first point I made. The second point I made is let's talk about how James tackles the issue of justice and equality because historically in this country, people have ex behaved exactly the opposite, especially as it relates to the people of color. One of the biggest hazards we all face is now we have all this screen view that's essentially smothering us with the reality of racial prejudice. But racial prejudice didn't start this weekend or last month. I mean, this goes back to the 1600s when slave trading first began in Africa and the southern plantation owners needed slaves to grow their crops and this, that led this country to a civil war. And from 1861 to 1865, this country fought for equality of men, racial, white and black, to be equal. And if you're not aware, more than, 
more than 600,000 Americans died in the Civil War. That's more than died in World War II for the American country. That's 150 years ago, the Civil War. And yet here we stand, talking about the same issue, talking about the same justice and equality, and certainly progress has been made. But I think that question, do you believe progress has been made, might depend on whether you're white or whether you're black. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, my mother was a, you know, always had the news on. And, you know, I watched LBJ on TV sign the Civil Rights Bill in 1964. That's 50 years ago. I remember the news coverage from the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Do you remember that? To me, these are defining moments in the history of this country in many ways, and it talks vividly, in my view, about the inequality of blacks and whites. And you know, now that I've studied a little bit in my life and I've gotten a little smarter, for Pete's sake, I've got a graduate degree. I must know something. Um, what about the assassination of Medgar Evers? I mean, this guy is shot down in his garage in 1963. And JFK was assassinated a little bit, uh, a little bit later. How about the march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965? And the police had billy clubs and tear gas, and they were on horseback, and that came to be known as Bloody Sunday. I have vivid memories of the 1968 Democratic Presidential Convention when the Black Panther movement stood side by side with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and they talked about inequality as well as the number of blacks that had been uh, drafted to go to Vietnam because they didn't have the resources to get the deferrals that a lot of white families did. And look. I don't know what your context is, but just give me just a few minutes to tell you about my context. I grew up in the South. I'm born in Raleigh, North Carolina. Lived there till I was five years old. After five years, we moved to uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. So I'm in Metairie, Louisiana uh, for two years, and then I moved uh, to Houston, Texas, and I was in Houston from second grade till I graduated from high school. And throughout those years, there were numerous things that happened uh, that were um, evidence of racism, or more importantly, as an evidence of anti-black. Um, and perhaps the closest to home for me personally was in seventh grade, I went to Sharpstown Junior Senior High School. That in itself should be a challenge. Why is a seventh grader going to high school with a senior? But that's the way it was. But the racial tension that year, my seventh grade year, was so explosive in Houston that for three or four weeks we had Houston police officers standing on the roof of the high school every day when I went to school. And I share this with you because now I've got a 33-year-old son, and here's what he said to me a few days ago. He said, Dad, I feel so super fortunate not to have been raised in a bigoted family. Man, killed me, right? And he said, 
I'm glad you and mom raised us to a higher standard. But somehow I cannot shake the fact that I am responsible for some of this inequality. Somehow I am responsible because of the color of my skin for what's happening. He said, white privilege has not led me to anything but positive, but white privilege is the challenge where people might be coming uh, to kill if I had a different skin color. He said, I don't understand how people that are black wake up every day and do their life when they know there's the possibility that I could get stopped for speeding or I could just be out for a jog and something bad might happen. He says, I have no idea what it must be like to live in a world like that. It's pretty straightforward, even his words, right? And look, my dear friends, I'm a white guy. And, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I think I've had a privilege being born a white guy. I'm mourning the losses, just like you witnessed the losses. We have challenges with the losses, but for Pete's sake, man, is this different this time? Is there a different momentum? Is there something that's a different time and place about this issue? And, uh, I think now we have to really seriously, as believers in the body of Christ, have to do something. Last Sunday was the Pentecost, and I don't know if you remember that there's been many prophetic words that were around about the Pentecost would be the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not the end of the virus itself, but there was a lot of words that said, this will dis be displaced because of the Pentecost. And what did we see last week? COVID-19 is no longer the top story on the screen. Is it possible to believe that God revealed through the prophetic words that now he wants something better to be focused on? And that is racial inequality. That's justice and equality. Do you think that's possible that that could have happened? Yeah, I know that's a little bit far out, but I think it's time for us to do something more than feel bad. I think it's, it's time for us to do something more that is intentional to try to, you know, impose ourselves on the process. So, all those thoughts, sort of a commentary for me. What does James have to say about it? Because we always love the words he says because he's so right in our face, right? He's so direct. So look in James chapter 4 and look at verse 1, 2, and 3. What does he say? What, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within yourself? that you're double-minded, you don't really know. And then he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Is there any correlation to the earlier verses? 
how come we don't get further down the path because we don't pray and ask for God's intentional movement in this? In my view, James is saying exactly the same things and he is making exactly the same reference. But I think this teaching here in James chapter 4 has serious bearing on all of us because we fight over things of this world and yet we are warned in specific verses like this against worldliness. But yet, what are we doing? Look, the racism issue is fully entrenched in our governance. It's fully entrenched in our culture. Think about the historic decisions that have been made about race uh, in a largely white governed society. I mean, most of the attempts are band-aid, give a gift, try to figure it out, put in all sorts of social justice, all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, economic development. Uh, you know, one that I'm, I'm pretty interested in here in Kansas City is the, uh, uh, the development of the, uh, <laughs> that she's interested in it too. But look, <laughs> the problems are systemic. You cannot legislate equality between black and white. It's impossible. When I was thinking about this, I was reading about the protests in Kansas City, and it was funny to me, really kind of ironic, that they were down at the J.C. Nichols Fountain. I don't know what you know about J.C. Nichols, but I think the irony is too incredibly uh, challenging to ignore. This man is renowned. He is uh, you know, elevated as a, one of the greatest real estate developers uh, in this city forever. And he built the Country Club Plaza, but he also had so much influence. He intentionally, because that was the thing that you did in those days, you separated the white people from the black people. And so he was an urban planner and trained as a city planner. And so you separate the blacks and the whites. That's just what you did. And this is the reality of white privilege, isn't it? This is the reality so that we get to maintain our status. And even if the black man emerges, he's got to follow the white man's rules to get there. He's got to go to the right school. He's got to get the right process. He's got to go to the right trainings. And I'm sorry, I think it's destined for inequality. And that's what James says to us. Look, I again apologize to you because I am square in the role of pursuing uh, the most money, the most land, the most status of the world because that's what I've been doing my whole life. But when I read James chapter 4 on this matter, I think we live in a world that's driven by selfishness. I think we live in a world that's driven by bitterness. And I think we live in a world that's driven by envy. And we have the total responsibility to bring love to the party. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, Christian teacher, summed it up this way. He says, the whole history of mankind shows the failure of evil lustings to obtain their objective. Forgive me. But thy will be done is a much different message than my will be done. And when I confess this publicly, I want you to know I confess it because I want God to get the glory from the confession. 
The third thing I want to share with you, and let me finish it with this just very little bit. I want you to again go to James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, it says you got to get right with other people. Not only do you got to get right with God, you got to get right with other people. And I say you got to get right with other people no matter the color of their skin. Here's the reality. Any sustainable solution with racial tension in the U.S. is going to have to come from the believers. And that means we have to humble ourselves before God the Father. And we need to say to him, we got to get right with this matter, Lord. Help us, please, Lord. Ask him for the wisdom and he will give it. I remember going to Africa with uh, Jerry, my wife, almost 20 years ago now. And I remember complete and total disgust with the living arrangements, with the poverty, with the conditions. And of course, I thought we could fix this. And then having lived with it for three or four days, I realized there's not enough money in the whole world to fix this problem in Africa in terms of poverty. But there's not enough money in the whole United States to fix racial discrimination. It's impossible. And here's what James says. Chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And that lawgiver is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? James served his life with passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I said a few minutes ago, it's time for us to take action. I think it is, and I know that means for me, humbling myself before God. If I see evil, i got to speak up about evil. I mean, we have our men's group last Friday, and a guy made a salty joke that I didn't think was appropriate. And I said, come on, man, we can't talk like that. But we can't sit by and be complicit when people say things that they shouldn't be saying. We cannot judge people by their appearance, by their earrings, by their tattoos, by what they're wearing, how they wear their hair, what kind of car they drive. And of course, that is so gigantically difficult. But until we start doing that, we're never going to get to the issue because it's going to come one at a time from our hearts. Jesus taught us that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second was like it. What did it say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Charles Spurgeon again. However high and orthodox our view of God's law might be, a failure to actually do it says to the world that we do not in fact put much stock in it. Somehow we have to erase this harsh criticism. Somehow we have to erase this manure of our everyday encounters that are critical. 
And so I want to turn all the way around to that first, that first chapter 4, verse 13. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time in this van and then vanishes. I've heard that scripture over and over again, and I remember with Jerry, we were flying to Europe for the first time, and I looked out, we've been flying over the ocean five or six hours, and the ocean is just completely and totally vast. And I said, you know, our lives are like a drop of water in that ocean. But each and every one of us, God has a plan to use. He has made a purpose for each and every one of you. And I tell you, the number one thing that purpose is, is you've got to get out of your mind and get out into the hearts of the people that you love, and you don't even know you love them yet. I know, I hope that you get from this the same thing I am getting, and that is I want to move my life toward the teachings of James and away from the learnings of the world. James, I think, asks us in his book to consider the fragility of human life and the fact that we need to loot, we need to move, but we only move at the permission of God the Father. And James does not discourage us, discourage us from planning or doing or being, but he wants us to do it relying solely on God the Father. Brian, do you feel that you could pray for us, brother? next first Sunday is that so I think right in that 4th of July area I hope to see you then thanks